structure of promoters, and then a little bit about the factors that bind to these uh, so-called core promoter elements. The outline pretty much follows the learning objective, so I'm not going to go back through it. Just as a jumping off point, so the central dogma proposed by Francis Crick is just a flow of information. So you have information stored in DNA or genes, okay, and it's replicated, and that's how you make extra copies of the genome to give just to, so that daughter cells can get them. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. Today we're going to talk about this event where you take that information within the genes and make RNA copies for that so that eventually these RNAs can be used to make proteins. So what's the goal or the outcome of transcription? Let's make an RNA copy of the gene. I'm just already, that's something I already just mentioned. Okay. So that's the eventual goal of transcription. Okay, just some standard, just some basic facts and nomenclature. Just like DNA synthesis, RNA synthesis proceeds from five prime to three prime. Okay. So this is the DNA template strand. It's double-stranded. During the process, it's opened up to expose one strand. And the RNA is made by complementary, is specified by complementary base pair, just like with DNA synthesis. And you're going from three, five prime to three prime. Just some nomenclature. So the uh, strand that is the same as the RNA, except that you have U's instead of uh, T's in the DNA instead of U's in the RNA, is called the coding strand in the DNA. It's also called the sense strand because it makes sense. Okay, this RNA is what makes sense for making a protein. The other strand is called template strand or antisense strand. Um, okay, so these are some of the fact, the things that were nomenclature that we'll go over in the next few minutes. Okay. Definition of a gene. So loaded is just the entire nucleic acid sequence that's necessary to synthesize a functional gene product. Okay. And that can either that final gene product can be a polypeptide or an RNA. Okay, and then Alberts has a similar definition in the glossary. There are three different nuclear RNA polymerases in eukaryotes. And they're just called very simply in the order that they came off of a particular column, RNA polymerase 1 or Pol1, Pol2, and Pol3. You'll see some papers where they're called A, B, and C because there's a different group that identified them and they same ones, but they try to call them A, B, and C, and this is the nomenclature that went out. And we'll talk about what each one, what, we'll focus primarily on RNA polymerase 2, because that's the one that transcribes the protein-coding genes. The structure, Dr. Howe may show you something like this already, but you can see that the structure of the bacterial RNA polymerase, a, a subset of the of a eukaryote RNA polymerase have a very similar structure. You'll probably recall from Dr. Howe's lectures that the uh, E. coli RNA polymerase has a subunit structure beta, beta prime, two alphas, and an omega. What I want you to take from this are these things about the eukaryote RNA polymerases. The eukaryotic RNA polymerases have a beta and beta prime-like subunits 
And just like in the prokaryotic case, that's the active site. Okay, so it's very similar. And then the other thing is that there are some units that are common between the different eukaryotic RNA polymerases, and then there are some that are specific, not surprisingly to each of them. Okay. The next thing I'll just say a little bit, I'll introduce this thing that's called the CTD. So in RNA polymerase 2, it has an unusual structure called the CTD, and that's described on this slide. So the largest subunit of RNA polymerase 2 has, an unusual, has its unusual structure, and it's called a carboxyternal domain, or CTD for short. And it has many repeats of the seventh amino acid, or heptapeptide. Okay. You don't need to know the consensus. It's, I've written it out here. The main thing that I want you to know from that is that tyrosine serine, threonine serine serine, there's a lot of hydroxyls. And that phosphorylation of this is going to be important in, in, a, in a couple of places. Okay, one today and then others later on. Okay. And you don't need to know the numbers, but just to <coughs> illustrate the point, yeast has 26 repeats of this heptapeptide, mammals have 52. In yeast, you can do these kinds of experiments if you get under 10. I mean, as you get shorter and shorter, the, the cell grows less and less well. When you get under 10, the cell won't, it's not viable. The other thing is that this is the first example of something that's called, people will call molten globule, okay, or low complexity. Okay, so there's, you know, it has, it doesn't, like all 20 amino acids aren't there, it has low complexity. These are unstructured domains. Kuraki talk? Did Kuraki talk to you guys? Did Richard Kuraki do a lecture in biochemistry? No, he didn't. Did he talk about disordered proteins? Yes. Okay, that's what this is. Okay, that's what this is. Okay, it's disordered, and when other things interact with it, it gives them structure. And so basically, what it does is, I mean, I can't. I'm doing the naive version of this, but basically, because of that. Um, that ability to take on different structures, it can adapt and interact with different proteins. Okay, that's what this does. And what we're also going to see later, either in the lecture or two, is that act transcriptional activators and the targets work the same way. Alright. So transcription initiation starter starter site, Dr. Halpern talked about this, but usually the conventional layout of gene is to have it laid out such that the gene is being transcribed from left to right, and the first site, the first nucleotide that's transcribed is called plus one. You just have some kind of arrow just to show people that you're going, that the gene is starting and going in that direction. What are some methods that you can use to map these start sites? And so we'll go over. Um, Three. Two of these, I believe, Dr. Cox, you don't cover anymore. Okay, that's fine. It doesn't matter. I'll cover them now. So here's some methods that you might use to sometime during your in your in your lives to map start sites. So the first thing you need to do is, is you want it 
You need to get RNA. You need to purify RNA from whatever cell or tissue you're interested in. So the first methodology is called S1 nuclease protection. This purple represents the RNA that you're interested in. And so you have to have an educated guess already about where you think the start site is. Okay. So in S1 nuclease mapping, what you do is you make a DNA probe that overlaps or covers that putative start site. And that DNA fragment has been labeled on one end. The old days it would have been radioactivity, now you can probably do it fluorescently or, or whatever method you want. Then you treat very lightly with S1 nuclease. This is an enzyme that digests single-stranded DNA. Okay, so what's going to get cut? Well, this part is everything that's not hybridized. I'm sorry, I skipped this step. You, you have this probe and then you put the label and then you hybridize it to your RNA. I apologize. Then you clean with this S1 nuclease. And then whatever's not hybridized will be cleaved away. You denature this, run it out on a gel, and then you detect with whatever method. It's radioactivity, it's auto radioactivity. Okay. And you get a band on the gel, and you can see how big that is by just by using standard molecular weight markers. So how, do you, how does that help you map the start site? Well, you notice N label is here, and that gives you the start site of the fragment that you're running out. Anything that doesn't have that label, you're not going to see. Okay, right? So everything's got to start from here and extend in that direction. So in this case, this is about 350 base pairs. You can run it on a more high resolution like sequencing gel. And basically, you know you designed this. So you know from this start site, you need to go 350 base pairs, and that's where your start site is. Does that make sense? You're always, in all these methods, what you're going to do is you're going to start from some defined point, figure out what you, product you have, and that'll tell you where your start site is. Can I ask a question? Okay. Yeah. All right, so that gives you an approximate position. Now, you guys are going to precisely map it to a nucleotide. I mean, that looks like about 350 base yeah. pairs. That doesn't tell you the nucleotide. It's about 350 base pairs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the universal answer. That's not going to work this time. You're going to want to sequence eventually, though. Yeah, how do you sequence that piece of DNA? Yeah, but what sort of technology do you use to sequence that piece of DNA? And you can extract that particular DNA from the gel if you really want to, but that seems to not be a very fun way. I'm sure there's a better method than that. You've got to use Max and Gilbert sequencing when you have an unlabeled piece of DNA to sequence that piece of DNA that's been labeled and determine what nucleotide matches that position. Right. So the initial primitive way of sequencing has to be used to get a precise match on that. Well, I mean, if you run sequencing gels, you can get base pair resolution. Yeah, but you have to start it with that position. I mean, it has to start with position one. I guess your primer, yeah. I mean, if you... If your primer started there. Right, and as long as your primer's in the not bigger than about... Well, that's probably about as big as you can get, but you just run it against the sequencing ladder, usually the Sanger sequencing ladder next door, but you could do Max and Gilbert. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, basically, to get nucleotide precision, you... I mean, this is rough, and so in this day and age, you're not. I mean, you probably, if you're really interested in Gina, you really want to answer this question. As Dr. Cox said, you probably want to get nucleotide precision. Yeah, you know, if you're really interested. What? I'm sorry. Okay. 
But the, conceptually, it's still the same. But there are other, you need to do higher resolution methods to get nucleotide precision. Okay. And the reason you might want to do that is you might want to start to see where the star site transcription is. And then from there, that'll start to tell you, well, where are certain types of promoter elements. Okay. The only thing I'm going to, there's, you can also do RNase protection. I think this, people find this easier these days than S1 nuclease. And so in this case, what you do is you use the labeled RNA instead of DNA. And then you just use an RNase instead of S1 DNAs. Okay. But conceptually, it's the same. Just using RNAs or probe instead of DNA. And then correspondingly, you have to use an enzyme that cuts single-stranded RNA. Another method is prior extension, and this diagram actually has S1 shown here on the left, and then here's reverse transcriptic, uh, prior extension acid, sorry. So in this case, what, you're, what you do is you, um, once again, you isolated your RNA, and once again, you need to have an educated guess about where you think the start site is, okay? You're just confirming that. So you make, design a little primer within 150 or so nucleotides of where you think that start site is, and you hybridize it. This will be about 20, nucle 25 nucleotides or so, just like a PCR primer, for those who've done PCR. And then you just extend. This is an RNA template with a primer. Use reverse transcriptase. Um, and reverse transcriptase is an enzyme that basically uses RNA as a template, and you make DNA from it. Retroviruses use it, you know, in their life cycle. Retroviruses are RNA genomes and they have to go back to DNA. So they take advantage of that enzyme. That reverse transcriptase will go along. The RNA, when it gets to the end, it falls off. You denature, you run that out of the gel, and once again, you know what the endpoint is. You can size that to whatever resolution you want. You know, at this day and age, people aren't interested in finding out start size within 20 or 30 nucleotides. If you want to find it, you're probably going to want it down to the nucleotide and you can identify start site. So it's the same, but conceptually at the end, it's the same thing. From some endpoint, you know the endpoint because you defined it, you can identify the size, and that'll give you the start site. Right. Now that all being done, here's the most modern way, but it has its problems. So here you take advantage of PCR. I'm not going to go through the steps. All I'm going to say is you start with the RNA, and once again, you do a reverse transcriptase reaction, and you take advantage of the fact that mRNAs have a particular modification on the 5' end called the 5' cap. When you talk RNA processing, when you talk about RNA processing, you talk about that, what that, what that is and how it's put there. Okay. So what you, can, what you do is you basically use a combination of reverse transcriptase and PCR, taking advantage of the fact that mRNAs have a 5' cap on the end so that you try and force your reverse transcriptase to go out to the end. Okay, and only enrich, only use those products. And then basically what you do is that you can basically PCR out your product that will identify the start. Once again, you either need to run out on gel or, or in this case, since you can, you're using PCR, you're getting a product that you can directly sequence it. Okay. 
right. And this method is called rapid, rapid amplification of cDNA and or some of the acronyms RACE race. Does anyone have any questions about any of those methods? Does everyone, in that last one, everyone understands just the, the main concept is know that you're using an advantage of something that's specific to the antigen rich for products that go out to the end. If you don't do that, um, RNA, reverse transcriptase falls off at, a relative, at some rate, you're going to get all kinds of different things when you PCR it out. So you have to do, have this step in here. Where you um, select for those. Okay. Alright, so if there aren't any questions, let's go on. This is just a little bit more nomenclature. Once again, here's that schematic of a gene. Um, plus one is the start site. I've given you some ways of identifying that. And the nomenclature is of the gene, you start from plus one, next nucleotide is plus two, plus three, out to plus 10,000 if that's the case. Just going out sequentially. Everything going down. In the direction transcription is called downstream, and it's plus numbers. In the other direction, going left of the point of transcription, you start at minus 1, minus 2, minus 3, minus 10, and so on. <coughs> okay? So you have minuses and pluses, no zero. Everything on the left side is called upstream. That is the minus part of the, everything that's, well, gets a minus designation and everything that's on the right in the plus designation is downstream. Okay. Start site of transcription is usually a purine. Okay. About 75% of the time it's an A or a G. So what's a promoter? A promoter is the region of DNA that's required to specify the appropriate level as well as the regulation, meaning spatial Right, right, spatial organization or expression, right, temporal expression, so the regulation of gene transcription. And what does that promoter contain? It contains enhancers, which are basically positive regulatory elements, the core promoter region, which is we'll, what we'll see is there's a certain RNA polymerase 2 is eventually going to land with some help, and then sometimes some inhibitory sites. It's not so different from, at least, in, this part conceptually from prokaryotic promoters, right? You guys, there's things that turn it up, things that turn it down, and a place for Paul 2 to go, or the polymerase to go. Alright. So let's contrast that. So what are some basic characteristics of eukaryotic transcription and how they differ from prokaryotes? Okay. So we'll go through them one at a time. In eukaryotes, transcription is in the nucleus, translation is in the cytoplasm, so they're spatially separated. In eukaryotes, transcription is going on in the nucleus, and it's got that RNA needs to get out into the cytoplasm in order to be translated. So, this actually builds in places where you can regulate gene expression, what happens to this RNA. In the case of prokaryotes, the ribosomes and the DNA are all in the same place, so as soon as you start to transcribe, ribosomes start to jump onto that RNA. Eukaryotes have, as I've already mentioned, three different nuclear RNA polymerases, as opposed to um, 
in the case of prokaryotes, there's, there's one with different sigmas. And here's basically a, a representation of a uh, of a column of a column that was run to identify these three different RNA polymerases. So this is an example of the experiment that was done. After a handful of steps of purification, they ran a column and they got these peaks of RNA synthesis activity. They call these very simply RNA polymerase one, RNA polymerase two, and RNA polymerase three. And as I said, they're sometimes called RNA polymerase A, B, and C. But 99% of the time, you see this nomenclature. What do they transcribe? And where do they work? So let's just keep this simple. So first of all, transcription by these three different RNA polymerases, they'll say that these um, specify the three major classes of gene expression. Okay? So the genes expressed by RNA polymerase 1 are the ribosomal RNAs. And that happens in the nucleolus. Okay. RNA polymerase 2, and we're just going to keep this simple, transcribe the mRNAs. Then RNA polymerase 3 transcribes the tRNAs and then one of the ribosomal RNAs. Okay. These two, RNA polymerase 2 and 3, both function in the nucleoplasm. So that's everything outside of the nucleolus. Okay. You have a question? What is alpha mRNA? Well, we'll talk about that. That's the next thing. Okay. <coughs> All right. And let me just mention um, some organelles do also have their own RNA polymerases. So there is a little bit of transcription happening in other places. We're not going to worry about that in this class. But just so it's mentioned. So the next thing we'll talk about is how can you distinguish between these different RNA polymerases? Well, you can use this drug called alpha mannitin. And where do you, what does it look like? You don't need to know the structure, but this just shows you, this is alpha mannitin, and you can find it in mushrooms. So in some mushrooms, when they, if you eat them and it kills you, this is what's killing you. Okay, your RNA polymerase shuts down, gene expression, and, and anyways. Um, so this is, a, but in a lab, this is useful, as long as you keep it in the test tubes. Okay, and <clears throat> different RNA polymerases have different sensitivity, okay? Paul 1 is insensitive. Paul 2 is extremely sensitive, that is, it's inhibited very easily or strongly by this drug. And then Paul 3 is kind of intermediate. You need a, it, it is inhibited, but it takes very high concentrations. And that's actually what's shown in, in, uh, in this experiment here. What they, what they actually did in blue, what they said is that they add a very modest amount of alpha mannitin, now you only see the Paul 1 and Paul 3 activity. Remember, Paul 2 is the most sensitive. Okay. So when you add alpha mannitin, the activity you see is this in blue and this in blue because these are more resistant. Okay. If you have, go to even higher amounts of alpha mannitin, the Paul 3 activity will go away. That's part of how they identify the fact that there are two different polymerases down here. Okay, because what Paul 3 really looks like a shoulder off of Paul 2. Okay, so this is a useful drug in some in some experiments. Okay. In eukaryotic transcription, genes are dispersed throughout the genome and they're also monocystronic. Okay. For example, in eukaryotes, the genes that 
involved in tryptophan biosynthesis. There are, in the case of yeast, there are various chromosomes. And each gene only specifies one polypeptide. I won't go through one by one, but you can look at the schematics. As opposed to prokaryotes, the trip operon is polycystronic, and they're all clustered together in one location. Okay, I apologize for those of you who have had, a, a, like I said, a strong molecular biology class. A lot of this is going to be with you. And then another difference is that in eukaryotic transcription, you have processing. Okay. I'm going to mention them now, but as I said, this is the subject of another lecture later on in the course. Let me just listen to that. Um, so there's five prime cap and three prime polyadenyl tails, and um, presence of introns that need to be removed by splicing. Okay. So you don't need to know the structure, it's just you know, just there, there are these post-transcriptional events, 5' methyl cap. That is on the 5' end. You put on a very unusual structure. Okay, that's specified by green in this schematic over here. At the 3' end, you add a whole bunch of adenosine residues, so poly A tails. And then the most striking one is that from the gene, you transcribe the whole thing, but then you cut out certain regions, or that is you splice out certain regions to eventually end up with the mature message. Okay. And actually, that S1 nucleus experiment was one of the experiments that was done to actually show that splicing occurs, one of several. <clears throat> and I won't go into too much here, but splicing can be a, 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 can be a step that's involved in regulating genes. For instance, if you have this gene fibronectin, you have different forms in different types of cells based on how you put together the exons. That will be something that you talk about more when you get to that lecture. So this is a little, just kind of a prelude. Okay. Does anyone have any questions at this point? We're good? Okay. So today, so you can divide transcription into this transcription cycle. The Dr. Howe mentioned this kind of idea, just basically just saying that things have a beginning, a middle, and an end. So transcription can be divided. People usually work on, if you work on transcription, work on one part, either the initiation, the elongation, or the termination. So it's just really telling you things have to have a start, a middle, and a finish. Okay, and today we'll talk about the start a little bit. Um, this is just a simplified kind of schematic. So when genes are off, they're kind of in more of a compacted form. You have these activators involved, which turn genes on. They start to get it, it interact with the DNA, start to open it up um, in a variety of ways. And the eventual goal, right now we'll start with a simplified goal, is to assemble this complex over the near the start site transcription. That's called the RNA polymerase II transcription machinery or pre-initiation complex. And you can probably already see that this is going to be a lot more complicated than what happens in prokaryotes. Okay, there's going to be a, a lot of additional proteins. You don't just have an activator in Paul II or a repressor and, and polymerase. Okay. Oh. Right. One thing I want to do before I go on is I just want to make this point. Um, 
when you do experiments, there a lot of times what you're going to be doing is you're going to be looking at like RT-PCR of, of R. You're interested in a, some tissue, some cell line. You do some manipulation, get out the RNA, and you do RT-PCR, okay, quantitative RT-PCR. You're going to say, okay, gene is up or gene is down, the RNA levels. The one thing I want to make a point at is that when you do those experiments, it's not distinguishing between um, whether that level of RNA is regulated at the level of RNA synthesis or at stability. Okay. When you take out RNA, you're basically taking a steady state. Okay. Does, see, does everyone see what I'm, I'm sorry? I didn't explain that very well. So a lot of you in your careers, you're going to do some manipulation. You'll look at, I'm interested in gene X. You're going to get take the RNA. You have primers against that you're going to do some kind of PCR-based assay that tells you, hey, that gene went up, or that you know that level of RNA went up or down. Okay. My point is that doesn't tell you at all whether that RNA is being regulated by stability or by synthesis, because okay. you're looking at steady state, and there's two things that can influence that: you can how much you're making and how much you're breaking down. Okay. So what I want to do here is I want to give you a couple of experiments. Where you can really say, if, I mean, a lot of people automatically just infer that it's that the regulation is due to genes being turned on or off. And I'm going to give you just a couple of experiments where you can actually directly say that if you want to. Okay. So if I do a, so if you do a quantitative RT-PCR northern plot, all you know is that steady state has changed. Okay? So what will tell you whether the level of regulation is at synthesis? Well, I'm here are two experiments. Nuclear run-on assay, which is harder, but it illustrates the point. In a classroom, it's a little easier to illustrate what the point is. And then another is to look at heterogeneous nuclear RNA, which is basically the precursor. It's, it's basically the RNA before it's been processed. So let's go through the first one. Nuclear run-on assays. Okay. Alright. So in this case, what you're interested in is genes that you think are that are upregulated in the liver. Okay. And what you want to do is you want to ask the question: Is are these genes actually regulated at the level of synthesis? Okay. So one way you can do that is to do a nuclear run-on assay. So this is the more old-fashioned assay. Okay. It's harder. So you take your experiment and you isolate nuclei after you do whatever experiment you do, one you're interested in. Okay? You isolate those nuclei very gently, and then what you do is you incubate them under the appropriate conditions with radioactive, radio-labeled nucleotides. Okay. Actually, let me, okay. well, why is that useful? When you isolated those nuclei, what you've done is you've frozen all the RNA polymerases in, in whatever position they are in the gene. Okay, you capture them in that state. So then when you incubate them with these nucleotides, they're going to make whatever R they're going to finish making whatever RNAs they were already making. Okay. So the only thing you're going to see is RNA that's being synthesized. The only thing you're going to be able to follow. Does everyone see that point? Okay, you isolate that RNA, and then you hybridize it. Does anyone do southern or northern plots anymore? 
No? You guys, the, you guys ever done Southern or Northern Block? Some of you? Okay, so, all right. Well, anyways, hybridizing is the same. It's basically the same hybridization that you do in PCR. Okay? So you take this RNA, you hybridize it against the dot block. So what you've done in the dot block, you put little spots of cDNAs of the genes you're interested in, 1 through 12, and then some controls down here. And what you can see is that if you take RNA that you've isolated from liver and done this nuclear run-on, that it hybridizes to certain number, certain ones of these spots. So that tells you that those genes are being transcribed in liver, actually actively synthesized. Okay. Whereas if you do the same nuclear run-on with, ki with kidney cells or brain, you see no hybridization there. So that basically is telling you that these RNAs are actually being actively made in liver and not in kidney or brain. So the fact that they're liver specific is not due to the fact that they're made in all tissues and then degraded, but that they're being specifically synthesized here. Okay, does everyone see why this actually tells you synthesis versus just taking RNA from the cell and doing quantitative RT-PCR? It's just telling you steady state. You can't know whether it's synthesis or degradation. The simpler way nowadays is, although it's the measure of heterogeneous nuclear RNA, that's basically when you first make the RNA, it's, it's the precursor, it's what's still in the nucleus. Okay, so you're trying to capture the RNA closer to the point of synthesis. So you take that RNA and you basically make a primer that's directed against um, an entronic region. And so that'll only, and then you do, then you do your quantitative RT-PCR. And the reason why this is useful is basically you're trying to measure something that should only be in the RNA prior to the splicing. Okay, because you're doing it against an intron. And so this is a better indicator of synthesis. Does everyone see what the point is of that? If you, if you do your, basically you're doing quantitative RT-PCR still, but if the primer is against the intron, you're basically capturing the RNA before it's leaving, something that's very close to the point of synthesis. Okay, if you go back to here. Okay, the RNA is made, and the, whole, the introns, which are blue, are still in. The introns are still in. It's only when, this, when the splicing occurs that you get the mature RNA. So if you're doing the PCR, your primer, one of your primers is here. Then you're capturing the RNA much closer to the point of synthesis. Okay? And it's not until this event happens that this RNA is even leaving the nucleus. All of this is occurring in the nucleus. It's only after 5'-cap poly-A-tail splicing occurs that the RNA leaves the nucleus. So if you're doing the PCR and one of the primers is directed against the intron, you're capturing it, the RNA prior to it leaving the nucleus. Yeah? How does that allow you to measure RNA degradation? It doesn't. You're just saying that's closer to synthesis. 
you're, you're not measuring degradation. You're just saying, can I measure the rate of synthesis? Can I see, can I measure synthesis in one, one condition versus another? So I'm not looking at degradation. I'm just saying, can you act? Most people are more interested in synthesis. Is it being turned on or turned off? So these can actually, these experiments can explicitly tell you whether that's the case or not. The nuclear run-on doesn't tell you, doesn't measure degradation directly either, but it does tell you whether the changes are due to synthesis. So to measure degradation, would you mean, like, so you see, you could measure the levels of synthesis, and then you could just do normal PCR to measure what levels were present, and compare them and say, like, well, they were synthesized because we see this, but then they're not present in the same quantity. I mean, like, could you compare them to or how? I mean, you could do, it's, it's probably easier to do um, some type of labeling experiment where you, where you actually measure that, figure out the half-lives directly. But, but, um, I mean, you can do it by that kind of, if this is a total and this is the amount that's due to synthesis, any other regulation is probably due to degradation. But you probably want, if you're, if you're actually interested in, in, in um, RNA stability and where it's, where it's being degraded, it, you probably want to measure half-life directly. So what's the value of labeling an intron over an exon here? Because an exon, because this is just going to measure, it's already out in the cytoplasm, so you're just measuring steady state of what's in the cytoplasm already. Whereas basically, if you do PCR against an intron, that's where when the primers is directed, it's, it's, you're measuring what events are, it's still in the nucleus. Okay, so it's early in the process. So it's a, it's a stand-in for, for like a nuclear run-on where you're measuring, there you're measuring the actual synthesis directly. Here you're saying, saying I'm still measuring the RNA when it's still in the nucleus. And so I believe, I think it's fair to say, and it's, you could argue that it's a closer representation of the actual synthesis rate. Question? So when a primer attaches to it, does it prevent from being excised? Oh, no, no. You've got you to isolate the RNA. This all, with, all these experiments have to be done with isolated RNA. All these experiments have to be done with isolated RNA. Yeah, you're not doing it in the cell. You're doing it. You're doing it. You isolate the RNA, and then you, these PCR assays. All you have to you have to have something to put into your reaction. So these are all isolated RNAs. So does RNA degradation only take place in the cytoplasm, which is why you care about the nuclear concentration? Does it occur in both? Most of it happens, and I mean, if it yeah, if it gets out into the into the I mean, most of it occurs in the cytoplasm. I mean, this, the, 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 the heterogeneous nuclear RNA, it takes advantage of the fact that PCR is very simple, but it's actually not, still not, I mean, in terms of actually saying in synthesis, the nuclear runout is actually more, is actually better. I mean, this is still a step removed, but it's, you're basically saying it's early and it's easy, so people use it as a stand-in these days. But you won't detect splice variants, I guess, would you? I'm sorry, what? You would detect, like, splice variants that were paused? Well, yeah, I mean, so you have to, okay, so that's, so you're saying like if you're looking at two different, if there's different splice variants of some gene, I mean, you have to pick, you have to pick something that's common, like if you want to look at the whole family, I mean, the question is, I guess, what you want to ask, if you're asking if, if splice variant one versus splice variant two, 
is there, then you want to actually, you could actually use this to, well, actually, it's, it's the whole mature thing. So, I, I mean, you can, you can look at different splice variants by picking your primer against a, a I'd have to think about this, but you could use your, make your primer against an intron that's not in one versus the other to look at one gene and not the other. But, I mean, if you want to look at both of them, then you'd have to look at one that's taken out of both, I guess, if you want to look at it early in synthesis. That's a good question. I'd have to think, I'd have to think it out. I'd have to reason through what you would want to do if you're... I mean, the, the first question you'd have to ask is, what am I looking for? Am I looking for variant 1 versus variant 2? Or do I want to look at the total? Then you'd have to decide, okay, now I want one that's taken out of both. Then that would tell me synthesis of them of the whole set early. Whereas if I'm only looking at... Anyways, I'd have to work it out. But, yeah. I mean, that's a good question. There's splice variants. You have to be careful in how you pick your primers. So what's the problem with this approach if you're trying to measure low copy number of messenger RNAs if you're using intronic primers? What's the problem specifically if you're looking at a low copy number? Yeah, I mean, it's probably not going to be a major problem if you're looking at a very high copy number of messages, but if it's a low copy number of messages, what is what problem? Let's say, let's say you can get amplification and detect your product. What is, what's the same, what has the same sequence as your unspliced message? The DNA. So when you're using intronic probes, you have to be very careful to make sure there's no DNA before you do your RT-PCR. Because then you can't find no DNA versus Those are all good questions. Any others? Look, I'll be realistic. In a lab, if, if you do an RT-PCR and you, ask your, you, you actually want to figure out, well, is it directly synthesis? I mean, usually if you do this kind of assay, people will just say it's synthesis. And if you tell your boss you want to do this, he'll probably look at you like, why are you wasting your time? But you know, it, just know that this actually doesn't tell you whether it's synthesis or stability, OK? I mean, I just want to make that point. Okay. All right. All right. I mean, does anyone have, those were all good questions. Does anyone have any others? All right. All right. So, how's a promoter defined? Okay. So, here's, so basically, one way to look at promoters is basically to cut them out, put them into some artificial system, and then just try and uh, mutate the piece of DNA in a way that you can identify what the important pieces are. Okay. So you, in this case, what you're doing is you're starting with a gene. Let's say you have a rough idea that this, whatever it is, let's say it's about a thousand nuclei, a thousand base pairs, is um, sufficient to get the um, recapitulate the expression that you see um, that you're interested in. You know. So this, if it's a, uh, you know, if this is specific to liver cells or it responds to glucocorticoids, this is enough to give you that response. So you take that fragment of DNA and you're going to put it into a plasma that has a reporter gene. The point of hooking it up to this reporter gene is it just makes it easy to assay. It's just something that's easy to assay. Okay. So typical reporter genes are beta-galactosidase. 
this is the lac Z gene that you guys talked about with the lac operon, or firefly luciferase, well, there are different ones, but luciferase, something that generates light, you know, when given the right substrates. And I'm just going to show you a very simple deletion analysis. It's all summarized here in one big figure, but we'll break it down into the different pieces. But what you're essentially going to do is take this promoter fragment, chop off successively larger pieces of DNA until you find the regions that eliminate the activity. So here's it broken down. Here's your whole promoter. This recapitulates the activity that you want. Using um, various techniques, you can basically make smaller and smaller fragments of that. In this case, there are five. The little dot specifies the start site. So these are called five prime deletions because you're deleting farther and farther in from the five prime end. You make five different plasmids containing all of the different fragments. One is the whole thing. Two, three, four, and five are successively smaller fragments. Okay. So this just says you clone it and all this stuff ligated and transform it. But basically, you just cloning it upstream such that it should, in theory, be able to turn on this reporter gene. You transfect these five different plasmids individually. Okay. You don't mix them. One, number one goes into one uh, cell culture well, two goes into the second one, and so on. And then you let the cell basically express this reporter gene if the promoter is active. And then you can measure this, the enzyme that's made from this reporter gene. And here's the result you saw, you obtained. So for plasma number one, which was the largest, and they don't give you numbers, they just say, they just give you pluses, you have three pluses, that's full activity. Remember, that's your parental. Plasma number two is still full activity. Plasma number three, you've lost some of the activity. So that, what that tells you is between the endpoint of <coughs> plasma two, between the endpoint of plasma 2 and the endpoint of plasma 3, somewhere in that region, you must have lost an important promoter element. Okay. Number 4 is the same as 3, and then at 5, you've lost all of the activity. So you've lost another element. Now, there are caveats to this. I mean, you know, sometimes when you delete, they, it causes some odd thing to happen, but the simple interpretation is just that somewhere between the endpoint of 2 and endpoint of 3, you've lost an element. Somewhere between the endpoint of 4 and 5, you've lost an element, a promoter element. Yes? Sorry, this is really basic. Um, the reporter plasmid, is that a, that's a DNA strand? It's a, it's a whole pla it's a, it's a pla it's, oh, I'm sorry. You guys, a plasma is just this, it's a small circular piece of DNA that you can transfect into it's basically a cloning vehicle. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, so if you guys not... Okay. No, I'm, I'm going to do it. Sorry. No, it's okay. That's okay. So let me go back. So, um, no, that's a good question. So, so this is the whole promoter piece. And this is just a piece of DNA. You can make that by PCR. And so a plasmid is just a... It's a it's an ex it's so there's in the bacteria it has its normal genome, but a lot of bacteria 
carry small circular pieces of DNA along with the normal genome. And back in the 70s, people um, isolated these small circular pieces of DNA, and then that's what they used. They put in um, um, antibiotic resistance markers, and then they put in these so-called multiple cloning sites. Basically, basically, there's a place where there's a whole bunch of unique restriction enzymes where you can clone in fragments of DNA. And then, and then they, the, the method, methodology exists to one, um, reintroduce those into, um, into, into bacteria. And then you use the antibiotic resistance marker to identify which bacteria has that plasmid, has plasmids, and then you kind of check to make sure it's got the fragment you put in it. Okay, and then once you clone it into the bacteria, once you clone it into the bacteria, you can isolate these plasmids back out, away from the genome, just these little small circular pieces. And then you can then take that plasma DNA in, and similarly you can now introduce it into mammalian cell culture cell lines, like tissue cell culture dishes. Cell. And then in this case, the first step is just a uh, reagent production. The second part is the assay. So you're using bacteria as the uh, propagation and amplification of this plasmid to make the reagent, and then you transfect into the um, into the eukaryotic cells to actually measure what it is you're in, you know, the, the activity of the promoters. Does that make sense, or? Yeah, that helps. Okay. Can I ask another question? What's the fate of that plasmid DNA when you put it into the eukaryotic cells? Give me its life cycle. What happens to it? <coughs> Depends on the cell, right? No, give me a, give me a life cycle. <laughs> In a circular plasma DNA. So it goes into the nucleus and then it kind of, it, um, it actually like takes the DNTPs um, and the machinery of the nucleus of the eukaryotic cell to transcribe what's on the plasma. Then you have to have eukaryotic selection markers. It's a rare event, but you, yeah. So important here to distinguish between transients, where there just, there's no necessity for integration, and long-term propagation of expression, you know, anything over a few days, you're going to need integration because that DNA will be integrated otherwise. That makes sense. But actually, you do most of these transient. Yes, I understand. Uh, yeah, okay. So you should do this. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean I'm glossing over that fact, but. Okay, and I want them to think about Right. Sure. What's happening to the DNA as you're putting it in? I mean, that has been brought up. I mean, usually these assays are done transient. That's good enough. Okay. All right. Any other questions? All right. All right. So, so let me let me just say one other thing. So. One way you can go back to check whether that element is the element where you 
if the position where you think you've identified elements is actually correct, what you can sometimes do is you can go and you can make so-called internal deletions. Okay. So this was your whole promoter. And when you got down to here, it, it was dead. So this is one and this is three. Okay, and wait, sorry, let me put in two. So, from two to three, somewhere in there is the important region. Okay, what you can do is you can make an internal deletion where you only delete out that region. Okay. As you get closer and closer to the stars of transcription, it's probably more important to do it that way. But, okay. All right. Anyway, you can do this kind, and then. Similar to what Dr. Cox was talking about with um, like defining start sites, is that this is very crude. Eventually, you want to make very defined mutations, point mutations, okay, to to isolate the where the promoter elements are, okay. But eventually, you're going to end up with a picture like this. And just look at the top one, okay. Yeast genes tend to be more compact, but like a mammalian gene. So here's your start site transcription at plus one. Here's the gene, and the blue and the tan tannish color are, are uh, specifying exons and introns. Okay? What we're interested in is the promoter elements, and that's all these green, brown, yellow. Okay? So, alright, so I'm going to say in, in, so First of all, near the start side transcription, usually from about minus 40 to plus 40, there's something called a core promoter. It's actually relatively under underappreciated how much diversity is actually there. And we'll talk a little bit about that today. Okay. The core promoter is where RNA polymerase 2 is eventually going to associate. The green are the enhancers or the um, stimulatory elements, the things that activate transcription, turn it on. They can reside, most people think of them as residing upstream. Okay. Unlike the case in prokaryotes where everything is compact, very close to the promoter, things can be very far away. This is up to minus 50 kb. If you read like that review, things can be as much as two megabases away. Millions of base pairs away. They can also be, these activating sites can also be internal to the gene, and they can even be downstream from the gene. Remember downstream is going to the right relative to the side. What approach did they use to identify elements to make the bases away? I don't know. It's it, well, the, the beta globin locus is well. This is like the range of beta globins, like 100 kb. But they're finding things that are just really far. I mean, I, I'm not really sure how they. You can't really. I almost mean, need a mutation in it or something. That, yeah, that that regulated the gene. I mean, you can't do that in a plasma. That's too big. Yeah. 
this pretty much reiterates in text what I just said. Okay, and I'll just so I'm not going to go through it, but that way, if you missed what I said, you can kind of just use this to summarize. Okay. The Polity transcription machinery assembles on a core promoter, and that core promoter is, is near the start side transcription. Um, I didn't say this actually, it's good I put this up here. So the core promoter, those things tend to be in fixed positions, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Enhancers are stimulatory. Um, I didn't say anything about the promoter proximal elements. These promoter proximal, there's certain types of activator sites that they tended to see close to start sites, but they really function no differently from the enhancers, which is why I don't really like to talk about them as being different. These are just, these are just enhancers that tend to be close. Sorry. Okay. We can have multiple enhancers. They can be spaced at various distances, and they can. These enhancers can also be within the gene or on the three prime end. Okay. All right. This just summarizes. This just is a picture of those points. Starts a core promoter, enhancers, and they can be all over the place. <coughs> Let's talk a little bit about the core promoters. This is a laundry list. The main two I want you to know about are these first two up here, the Tata box and the Initiator. Okay. But the other ones, I'll just mention them once. There are things called downstream promoter element, TF2B recognition element, motif 10 element, downstream core element. I, I know that these are just words without any meaning right now. Let's go through what they are. So here's the Tata box. Okay. Um, a consensus sequence, Dr. How talked about consensus sequence. Consensus is where you just look at a particular fragment of DNA and we just say a regulatory element or and you just look to see what basis, what, at what positions do you see certain nucleotides and then you build a consensus from that. In the case of Tata, you don't need to know it, but this is a consensus sequence that you get and so you can see where it obviously gets its name from. Most people, when they look at a gene, will say, look for the Tata box. Let me just say that's a misnomer. Only about 20% of genes have a consensus Tata box. Okay. And then there are other things that are called Tata-like, which actually vary from, the, from this consensus by two to three nucleotides. But all I want you to know is there's a Tata box is one of the core promoter elements, and this is what it looks like. Well, actually, you don't even need to know what it looks like. Just the Tata box is one of the core promoter elements, and it's at a fixed position, usually about minus 30 nucleotides upstream of the start site. And this just reiterates the point that the mRNA start, the first nucleotide is usually an A or a G, a purine, which I mentioned earlier. The other core promoter element I want you to know about is called initiator element. It's called an initiator element because it encompasses, when it exists in a promoter, it, it encompasses <coughs> the start side of transcription. I just list the consensus in case you're interested in looking at it, but you don't need to know that, obviously. This next slide, though, illustrates the point that these core promoter elements tend to be between minus 40 and plus 40. The ones I wanted you to know about are the Tata box initiator. In a second, I'll tell you what binds to those. 
and that these core promoter elements tend to be in very fixed positions. Okay, that you can actually say, oh, they're going to be at this position relative to the start site. Okay, I don't want you to try to memorize these numbers. Just they're fixed positions, right? You couldn't put this kind of these kinds of numbers unless they were relatively fixed positions. The other thing that's important is that no promoter contains all of these elements. They all contain some different combination subsets. Where the field's kind of evolving is that people are starting to realize that you need that activators function with certain combinations. They work best if they see certain combinations of, you know, activator number one likes to see certain uh, a certain setup or structure of the core promoter. Activator two likes to see a different core promoter, and that's what it works best with. Okay. So core promoters have different subsets of these elements. What binds at the core at this core promoter? And that's what we're going to talk about next. So before I say before I go on to that, let me just say that eukaryotic RNA polymerases, unlike the prokaryotic versions, cannot bind to the promoters by themselves. They need a whole bunch of helper proteins, whether it's Paul one, Paul two, or Paul three. That's And they require a set of factors that are called general transcription factors. The thing nowadays is maybe getting more common to call them core promoter factors. Because that's where they bind to those core promoter elements. Okay. In the case of RNA polymerase 2, these factors are called TF2A for transcription factor Paul 2. And then it's A, B, C got skipped, D, E, F, H, based on the order they came off a, col a column. <laughs> is there a story to C? What? Is there a story to why there's no C? Yeah, so, all right, well, <laughs> I mean, I mean, when they first got, they first, when they first were isolated, there was A, G, C, D, okay? E, F, and H were actually subfractionations of those. Okay. You needed to put these different of a fossil cellulose column, you needed this was low solid, modest, higher, higher. To get the activity, you needed to put all four together and um, and and all all four all adding all four gave you optimum activity. But what they found eventually found out was TF2C, the TF2C the activity that when they isolated the protein, it turned out to be poly-A polymerase, I think. And so it was, it was increasing activity, but it wasn't actually working in a specific way. It was just kind of, so you could get rid of it. It wasn't necessary for the, trans, for, for the transcription. So it was, there was a, a, there was another, there was a polymerase in there that had, I, I think it's involved in, I'm not sure what it's, is it PARP is the? Protein? I'd have to look it up. Okay? But that's why there's no C. Okay. You don't need to know all of these. 
what you need to know about these, I'm going to tell what I say in the next few minutes. TF2D and TF2B are the proteins that bind to core promoter elements. So they kind of form the scaffold or platform to help bring RNA polymerase 2 down. So, anyways, here's the core promoter. TF2D and TF2B are the things that interact directly with the DNA, or most directly. I mean, what they, they bind directly. They have sequence-specific sites where they interact. <coughs> All right, so this is kind of, okay, so basically that summarized here is the flute points. So what binds to core promoter TF2D and TF2B. That just reiterates what I already said. TF2D is made up of, it's about 13, has about 13 subunits. One of them is a protein called TBP, which stands for Tata Box Binding Protein. TBP binds to Tata Box. So right now just know what's in the blue. Everything else in TF2D is known as TBP associated factors or TAPs. T A F. This is all true. The main thing you need to know is this: that tabs they bind to initiator element. One of the tabs. Okay. So that's why I wanted you to know Tatabox and initiator because uh, those are also the things I'm going to tie that I'm tying back to this protein. You can see it also binds to some of the other core. There are other, there's about 12 or 13 subunits, 12 or 13 They also bind to some of the other core promoter elements, but I, I this set there, sorry, this this was something I had added last year that I forgot to delete it this year. But anyways, these facts are all true, but you don't need to know this, okay? And then TF2B binds to something called the TF2B recognition element, BRE. So where are those? Here's the Tata box, here's the initiator, and here's the, the BRE recognition element plants is on either side of the Tata box. Okay. So this is where these things are binding. Actually, let's not worry about this. Okay, I mean this is true, but it's, it's not worried about that. Um, later on, this this is when we talk about Paul one and Paul three. TBP is actually also involved in transcription by Paul one and Paul three. That's something we'll talk about later, but just as a prelude to that. Similar to the question you asked, this is going to be, I, I, when I'm, I'm going to talk about what these factors do in almost kind of a historical sense to give you an idea of how these things, um, to give you an idea of how, at least in this field, thing, how things progress, as well as tell you something about how, how these proteins work. Okay. So, like replication, um, you can't, it's hard to study transcription genetically. Because if you make mutations, um, you end up with dead organisms and you can't learn much from a dead organism. Now, you know, there, there are mutations in replication and there are some 
transcription that people find. <coughs> but it's not easy. And you can also take advantage of systems that are really strong and genetically like yeast. But they're basically very fundamental. So you have to do biochemistry. You have to make extracts that work. And then you have to basically, you know, it's, it's, it's the analogy is you have a watch, take a hammer, and you smash it open, and you start trying to figure out how the little pieces work. Okay? That's biochemistry. That's, if, you're looking at bio, if you're looking for protein functions, that's what you're going to do. Okay? I mean, nowadays with homology, sometimes you get a lot, a really big shortcut to, to how proteins work. Right? You, you have to guess. Okay. So when they made these active extracts, the ones that, that you were asking about just a minute ago, they basically started putting them together and say, okay, um, is there an order to how they need to work? Do, can we, what subsets do we need? And so what people first came up with for a model for how these things work is that they actually, that they bound to the promoter in a ordered fashion, that is stepwise, okay? And so they said, and you don't need to memorize this, the point, but the point is, you know, you know, these factors bind first, then another one, then Paul II comes in, and so on, until you get this pre-initiation complex, okay? And transcription levels in a cell are proportional, in most cases, to the formation of this pre-initiation complex. So this is the key event. Make this, and that, that will give you, that will correlate to how much gene expression you get, okay? And, okay. And so, so far, the only thing I've told you is that TF2D and TF2B are the things that bind to DNA. Okay. The only other factor we're going to talk about that is TF2H. But what I want to tell you next is that what people realize is, hey, maybe people got too carried away when they fractionated it. They basically split the damn thing up into too many pieces. And the thing doesn't really work like this. Okay. And so people came up with what they call a holoenzyme model. Okay, and in contrast to stepwise, the idea was that everything except for TF2D and TF2A were in one big complex, and that's the holoenzyme. Okay, so in this holoenzyme model, the idea is that TF2D and then this other thing TF2A, they it helps TF2D to bind to associate with the Tata box and the initiator element. And then everything else can come down in one big step. Okay, so that kind of simplifies the whole process. Okay. Alright. Alright. And so you might say, it's okay, and then alright. But it's evolved even further in this case. So this is a figure that's not in your in your lecture, and I apologize, I, I, I uploaded the wrong version. So this is just this figure. So this is from that 
view from Michael Bean and, and Teach. And so what, what, this, what, this, uh, what this figure is basically showing is that what people have realized is that, um, is that these core promoters and these core factors have a lot more diversity and complexity than people realized. That on different types of promoters, you get different combinations. And so there's not just one standard pre-initiation complex. Okay? That what you actually bring to the complex can vary on different promoters. Okay? The point is not to memorize what proteins are in each one, but just this idea 